Hello, everyone. It's good to be with you. I was preaching at the Dandenong um, Filipino Church this morning, and it had been such a long time since I preached like the old school way, meaning like, you know, the three of us got on the stage, sat in the chairs where they did all the preliminaries. We all knelt for prayer. And, you know, like I had to like, shake, shake everybody's hands as everyone left. And I was like, it's been so long since I've done all that because um, we, we do it so differently here. But um very happy to have this last Sabbath with you before we head off to the U.S. on Monday. Um, I just saw a message from my family that, they they just ran a vacation Bible school for children at their school, and some of those children or some of those families got COVID, so now they're they're feeling a little sick. So they're like, "Oh, please pray that we don't get sick." We're like, "No, all this time I've been praying that we don't get sick, but then if they're sick and we get there, but hopefully um, they'll feel better um, and that it's mild if if they have it, and if and hopefully they don't get it at all." But yes, so I just got that message right before, like two minutes before, so I'm like, "Oh no." It's feeling a little anxious, but hopefully we'll be able to um, spend some time together. It's been five years since we've gone back to Cali, um, where my family live, and um, Roy's family as well will be coming down to join us, and so we're really looking forward to seeing them, having the kids spend time with their grandparents and their cousins, and so, um, yeah, we'll miss you while we're away, but... um, I'm sure that you'll be in good hands. We've got some um, colleagues of ours coming to preach, um, so we're really grateful that they're able to step in for us, and we look forward to hearing that they got a very warm MCAC, um welcome here. So um, thank you all for continuing to serve this church community. So last week, Roy started a new series on exploring God's mission. And so we're kind of, what we're doing is looking at the overarching story of the Bible through God's eyes of what God is trying to achieve. So last week, Roy looked at God's uh, work at creation and his uh, character and his purpose through creation. And we he talked about how um, God created harmony from chaos and emptiness, and he blessed the seventh day and how he invites us into that Sabbath rest to remember that we were created in his image. Um, and that we have value apart from work, which I think is such an important thing to remember, especially as working professionals, to remember that we have value and worth outside of work. So today we're continuing the story, and sadly we now come to the place where everything was in harmony and perfect, and then we come to the fall. So we left off last week with the marriage between Adam and Eve, um, And the writer had said, this is why a man leaves his father and his mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I want you to think about that for a moment, the idea of not feeling any shame. When's the last time, or when was the earliest kind of memory of you feeling shame, right? There was a period of time when you were innocent and you felt no shame, no guilt, right? And that's, here's Adam and Eve where they had nothing to to feel guilty about, nothing to feel ashamed of, right? They live in this beautiful garden, delighting in each other, delighting in God, and everything um, was there to enjoy. But then we turn to Genesis chapter 3. And so here we go into what happened, because that is a reality that we cannot really understand, because we only know the world that we experience here. And now we're beginning to see how we got to this place. Genesis chapter 3, 
It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Now the writer in Genesis does not give us any background story about who is the serpent? Where did it come from? Right? And why is it even there? But from other passages in the Bible, we discovered that this serpent is also called Satan, which means enemy, um, and, or the devil, and that he used to be one of God's, um, angels, but that he had rebelled and led a rebellion against God, and that here he is now to try to alienate humanity from God. Now notice that what he's really trying to do here. He, he, and I highlighted this, he says, did God really say? So here, the serpent instantly is trying to put doubt in Eve's mind about God's word. He twists God's word to make it sound really mean. Like, when you, when you look at what the serpent says, he says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? Okay? And, and that's actually not what God said at all. And so what, what the serpent does is he makes immediately God sound like he's withholding, but also whether he really said what he did, right? It's, it's creating two kind of doubts in Eve's mind. So Eve rightly corrects him, oh no, we can eat from any tree except this one. And then the serpent responds, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it, and this choice changed everything. So what exactly was the choice that was made? Because the serpent made it sound like God was holding back, right? Holding out on them. The doubt that now is in at Eve's mind is, maybe God isn't on my side. Maybe he doesn't have my best interest in mind. Maybe he's keeping me from something that I actually want. And so she believes the serpent's lies, and she takes the fruit. But the irony is, that God had actually already provided all the things that the serpent is promising that she can have. So, for example, if you look at why she chose to eat the fruit, basically it looked yummy. It looked beautiful, and it promised to make her like God, right? That's what the serpent said. You eat this, and it will make you like God. But if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, God had already given them all these things. It says that God had given them all kinds of trees, trees that were pleasing to the eyes and good for food. So it's not like all the other trees had like, what's like the worst fruit I can think of? <laughs> um, I'm not a big fan of like grapefruit, okay? Do you, uh, pomelo, pom, pomelo, what do you call them here? Pomelos, okay. Like really bitter and sour. Okay, let's pretend. It's not like all the trees were, were that, and here is like a mango tree in the middle that looks delicious, right? No, all the other trees looked delicious, right? And were beautiful, right, and appetizing, and there were all kinds, and it was just this one they weren't supposed to eat. Also, excuse me, the serpent is saying, oh, God doesn't want you to 
be like him. Meanwhile, remember in Genesis chapter 1, God created them in his image. So they were already created to be like him. But here the serpent is promising things, making it sound like God was withholding, making it sound like they're going to get something that they actually don't already have, twisting reality. And the same goes for us today, right? Because God created beauty and taste and pleasure and love and all the things that we like. But the serpent skews our reality by saying, oh, God's way is all self-denial and boredom, whereas my way is all full pleasure and fulfillment, right? Meanwhile, the opposite is true. God's way brings true joy and meaning, and the serpent's way ends up bringing pain and death. But we, dis- we struggle to distinguish between the lies, which are wrapped in half-truths, and we struggle to uh, understand what it means to actually mistrust God's words. Because look at what happens to Adam and Eve. And, and, and that's why the writer recorded what happened, so we can see what happens when we disobey God. It says in Genesis 3, 7 to 8, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Remember how I asked you, do you remember when the first time was that you felt shame? I distinctly remember the first time that um, my firstborn felt shame. He was like 18 months old, you know, learning how to come up and down the stairs. And we, actually there was like, I think, small group at our house. And so there were like lots of people and he loves people. So he was like bounding down the stairs to say hello. And, and at the very last step, he tripped and he fell on his bum. And he was in a cute little onesie. And so everyone laughed because we thought it was cute. But he was so embarrassed he turned, he turned red, and he hid his face, and he went, up, he back, went back upstairs and wouldn't come down. And all of us were like, oh, we didn't, you know, we didn't realize that he would feel that way. You know? But there he was, um, already conscious and, and feeling embarrassed, feeling shame. And it was for something that wasn't even, you know, there was nothing wrong with that, you know, tumbling and, and tripping when you're learning how to um, navigate the stairs. Imagine how you would feel when you actually deliberately did something against God's word. Imagine how Adam and Eve felt the moment that they realized that they had made a mistake, a very big one. Before, there they were, completely naked and unashamed, and now they're trying to cover their nakedness with fig leaves. It's interesting how they hide from God when they hear him coming. What made them afraid? God hadn't done anything, and yet they were afraid. There's something that happens when we disobey and when we, um, when we sin and choose to listen to the lies instead of the truth that, that makes us want to hide from God. God is not hiding from them, but they're the ones that go and hide from God because they're afraid to face him. But God comes to them and he says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 to 13, he called out to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And of course, God already knows this, but he's um, asking them so that they can have a chance to respond. And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Remember just a chapter before when Eve was brought before Adam, he starts singing praises, he's delighting in her, he's so happy, at last here is my partner, and now he's like throwing her under the bus, right? This woman that you created for me, she's the reason why I ate the fruit. And it's interesting how the marriage relationship, which is one of the first things that God had instituted, immediately starts breaking down in that blame cycle. And of course, the woman blames the serpent. Nobody is saying, I messed up, right? This is what I did. But instead, they're pointing the finger. So now God turns to these three, right? There's the serpent, there's Eve, and there's Adam. And because everyone's passed the blame down, he starts with the serpent. And this is now God's judgment. He says to them, uh, he says to the serpent, oh, sorry, let me go back to what I was going to say. So in Genesis chapter 2, when we, when we go and look at, well, what was the consequence of them um, disobeying? God had clearly told them, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And in the original Hebrew, that last sentence, certainly die, it actually says you will die die. And, and to be more precise, it says, dying, you will die. And this very clear consequence was given with the very clear boundary, you can eat from any tree, just not this one. Now, you know, we have two kids, and so we've been parenting for 10 years now, and well, I guess nine years, because in the womb, there wasn't that much parenting to do. But nine years of parenting. And one thing that we have, um, you know, you read a lot of books and you listen to podcasts. And one, th one thing that's crystal clear from all the parenting experts is this. You have to give clear boundaries, right? Clear rules, clear and fair consequences. But that's not enough. You have to follow through with the consequence consistently. Because what happens if you're like, oh, I'll, let you, I'll forgive you this time. What happens is, then the next time you try to enforce the consequence, the child thinks, this is not fair. Last time you let me get away with it. Why, why, why now I can't get away with it? And so then they actually get upset, even though you had already explained the rules, because they think this is inconsistent. And it is inconsistent, right? It's unpredictable for them. They can't feel, they don't, they don't have clear boundaries because those boundaries keep moving. Sometimes they're, the consequences are applied, sometimes they're not. And here's the truth about parenting for those of you um, who uh, are parents. You will identify with me, I think. It is really hard to follow through on those consequences. <laughs> It is really difficult because it's a lot easier. For example, if the consequence was, all right, if you, you know, if, if I'm, I'm going to give you the iPad for 30 minutes, at the end of the 30 minutes, you have to give it back. And if you don't give it back and you give us a hard time about it, then no iPad for the week. Let, let's say that's the consequence. And if you've all agreed, 30 minutes goes by, ding, they whinge. So, you're, so then now you have to say, okay, no iPad for the week. But here's the thing. Those 30 minutes a day that they had the iPad was the time you needed, right, to have time for yourself or to take care of something that was needed for the house. So actually following through on that consequence means more, um, more, more work for you and the whinging that you get for days because they want the iPad is something you have to deal with. 
And so following through is actually very difficult for the parents. And so a lot of times um, parents aren't consistent with the consequences. And what happens then is that because of the inconsistency, the child can't, they don't have a solid foot to stand on. So because, because sometimes mommy will let me get away with it. Sometimes mommy won't. Sometimes she gets angry. Sometimes she forgives me. Sometimes I can get away with it. So what happens is there's a breakdown in trust. How can they trust that your word is going to be true for the good things you promise when even the consequences aren't always followed through? Does that make sense? So it's kind of counterintuitive because we think, oh, mercy is always good, right? We think, like, it's always good to forgive. But actually, um, and I'm talking about secular parenting experts as well as Christian parenting experts, everybody says you have to follow through and you have to be consistent. Even though it takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of time and a lot of effort for you, you have to do it because what then happens is there's a trust built up. The child has feels safe because they know where the boundaries are. They know what the consequences are. And they know that mom and dad, their word, it can be trusted. They know that um, they can be safe with you. Whereas the opposite happens. When you're inconsistent in that parenting, the child eventually, because they lose trust in you, they don't feel safe anymore, they actually rebel more because they feel they're acting out because they don't they're, they're, they feel like it's just a, a, a capricious, unpredictable environment for them. And so, um, so when we look at the Genesis story, you know, we might wonder, well, why didn't God just forgive Adam and Eve? Right? They just ate a fruit. Doesn't seem like that big a deal. Just let it go, God. But if he had, what would happen? And, and I think having been a parent now, I understand why God had to follow through on the consequence that he had clearly given out to them. Now, when we look at the consequences, one of the other things that is, like I said, true is that it's a lot more painful for the parent. And my mom used to say this, and as a child, I didn't believe it, but now I do. <laughs> Whenever my mom, you know, had to discipline us, she would say, this pains me more. And I'd be like, no, it doesn't, <laughs> right? This is more annoying for me. But now I understand her heart. Because as a parent, you want the best for your child and you want your child to be happy and you want your child to love you. And I can imagine as God delivered the judgment and shared the consequences with Adam and Eve, how much it would have pained him. He gave him this free choice. They made the wrong choice. And now he has to let them know the consequences of their choice and give them the freedom to live with those consequences. So what were they? First, he turns to the serpent, because after all, the serpent is the one who started all this. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, to the serpent, the fate at first seems not that bad, prowling on the belly, eating dust. But there is this prophecy that is given, and this, this verse is called the Proto-Evangelium, which means the first good news. Because even though Adam and Eve has, have sinned, God is saying, hey, I'm going to, I actually have a plan of redemption already. And he promises that through Eve, right, there's going to be a descendant who is going to strike the serpent's head, while the serpent has bitten and, and striked his heel with his deadly poison. 
And so who is this descendant? We're going to come back to this. Let's go to see what God says to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, last week, Roy shared how when God created Adam and Eve, he created them to be equal. As a result of the fall, the husband and wife relationship is altered. However, Roy showed last week that the gospel brings us back to the original design. And so, um, for example, he shared um, Ephesians, well, he, he shared Galatians 3.28, that there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all in, one in Christ Jesus. He shared Ephesians 5.21, where Paul told the husband and wife to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so in the New Testament, we see explicitly um, addressed how people treat one another had been perverted through sin, right? For example, the subordination of slave and free, um, of Gentile and Greek, and the biases that existed there, as well as the difference between men and women in that society and uh, for, for generations. And so through the gospel, God redeems those relationships so that there is no more slave or free distinction there is no more, and we today would say the socioeconomic distinction, right? There is no more distinction between races and ethnic groups um, and men and women. That in God, we go back to the Edenic design of God, which is we are created in God's image to reign together and to represent God's image. We'll come back to the women in a minute. What does God say to Adam? To Adam... He said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you are taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam and Eve's rebellion not only impacts them, their relationship with each other, but also all of creation, right? the ground, the land, the animals. Right Up until this point, Adam and Eve uh, had this relationship with the animals that um, were, was one of intimacy, right? Imagine being able to name the cheetahs and the snow leopards and the panda bears and just being able to you know, interact with them and swim with the dolphins and all the things that um, in my mind sound really cool, though I'm really scared of them now. But... Imagine if 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 um, all those animals and all of creation work together, but as a result of the fall, right now it's working against humanity. The ground is full of thorns and weeds, and and humanity has to work hard to till the till the ground to get food from it. Before, all they had to do was pluck some fruit from the various trees and just enjoy that, and that was enough. But now they had to grow vegetables and grain and, and, and you know, work with all the seasons. And we know how difficult that can be um, in the farming industry. And, of course, the ultimate consequence is that dying, they would die. And they would return to the dust from which they were created. Now, you might be thinking, this is not fair, right? Because of Adam and Eve, why do we have to live with the consequences, right? Why do, why do we have to have extreme pain in childbirth, right? Why do we have to work so hard to, you know, cultivate the ground? Why do we have to experience suffering and pain in this broken world because of Adam and Eve? 
Why do we have to suffer through no fault of our own? If you have ever had these questions, you're not alone. Many people, many followers of God have had this question, right? Why do good people have to suffer just because of the choices of our ancestors or the choices of other people? Job was a man who had these questions about suffering. He was a righteous man, a good man, who was faithful to God, and yet he suffered extremely. He lost all of his children, all seven in one day, all his sheep and cattle and incredible wealth, all destroyed in one day. He lost his servants and he lost his health. He was in agony every single day, couldn't sleep at night because of the pain. All this for what? And when you read the book, uh, book of Job, you hear his cry of, why is this happening to me? But in the midst of his cries, he says this in Job chapter 19. And, and the book of Job is a book of poetry. And it's layered in such a way that the, the middle is the climax. So here's Job 19, the middle of the book. And he says, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth. In the original Hebrew, it says, I will stand upon the dust at last. And after my body has declared, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. That Hebrew word for dust is the same word for when God told um, Adam and Eve that dust you are and to dust you will return. And it's the same Hebrew word for dust when he said to the serpent that he would eat dust all the days of his life. And so who is this redeemer, right? who is going to stand victorious over the dust that represents the death, who is going to stand victorious over the serpent and break the cycle of dust to dust and ashes to ashes. Well, more than 1,500 years after Job's vision of faith, an angel came to a young woman and delivered this good news. Luke chapter 1, the angel said, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And nine months later, in that stable in Bethlehem, humanity's fall meets humanity's redemption as Mary gives birth to Jesus. And yes, that birth was painful, because of Eve's rebellion. But she also had this incredible privilege of being an integral part of God's salvation. Her womb for nine months was the most holy place where God dwelt. To her was entrusted the creator of the universe to nurse and to raise. There's a beautiful Christmas song called Mary, Did You Know? And it's written by Mark Lowry. And the lyrics are quite profound. It starts, Mary, did you know? that your baby boy would one day walk on water. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Yes, it's true that Adam and Eve sinned, and the consequences are a world in suffering, all of creation, the land, the creatures, humanity suffering. And it, and it feels so unfair. And it isn't fair. 
because we don't deserve to suffer for someone else's choices. But did you know that the redemption that God offers is so much more than what we deserve for our own bad choices? In Romans, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Paul is saying here that the gift, or sorry, the curse of sin, right? All the suffering and unfair things we have to deal with because we live in a broken world. He's saying that this doesn't compare to the abundance of grace and glory that God has for us as a gift. Now, it's hard for us to comprehend that, and that's why we live by faith, right? Not by sight. Because the truth is, right now we are in that suffering. So we don't, we, we don't always get to experience the joy and the glory and, and the grace. But the promise of God is that, you know, you live, what, 100 years if you're lucky here on earth, and yes, parts of it are hard, Maybe a lot of it is hard, but an eternity is promised where we get to experience harmony with God and one another. It's not fair that we pay the price for our ancestors' sins, but it's also not fair that Jesus pays the price for our sins. We have undeserved pain, but we also have undeserved grace to carry us through the pain here and, of course, the resurrection to come. Why didn't Adam and Eve die the moment that they sinned? Why didn't God, you know, we understand why God couldn't, couldn't just, you know, say, oh, well, it's not a big deal, let it go. That's okay, we got through that. But why is it that God even gave them a second chance at all? Why didn't God just give up on humanity and say, okay, they failed, let's move on, new planet. Instead, go to Gen- go, when we go back to Genesis 3, after he gives them the consequences, it says the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Where did these garments of skin come from? Right? God didn't have a rack of you know, leather clothes just hanging around. Up until that point, there had not been a single death. This implies that the very first death in the universe was actually God taking a creature that he created and taking that life to clothe Adam and Eve. Maybe it was a lamb. Maybe it was a goat. Whatever it was, that animal symbolized what God himself would do one day in humanity's place so that they could have that second chance, so that they could stand before God unashamed. And that's why God instituted the sacrificial system. Throughout the Old Testament, you see God giving the blueprint of the plan of salvation through the sanctuary system, where he says that the sinner, if they brought this animal and they confess the sin, 
and the blood of the animal goes into the sanctuary and the sinner goes home forgiven. And so when Jesus came thousands of years later and his cousin John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Pointing to the fact that Jesus at last is going to be that ultimate sacrifice. And he was. We see that when Jesus breathed his last and said, It is finished, that in that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And, and people believe, we don't have the exact details, but people believe that this temple veil was, you know, as thick as a man's hand. And um, it was 60 feet high, so what is that in meters? There you go. <laughs> so a huge temple in, uh, veil being torn from top to bottom because the moment Jesus died, the ultimate sacrifice had been completed and they did not need to do animal sacrifices anymore because at last Jesus, the descendant of Eve, had stood victorious on the serpent, had stood on that dust and declared that no more is it dust to dust, ashes to ashes. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, For since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits. Then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And so, remember when the serpent said to Eve, you will not die. That lie gets proven wrong when Jesus comes again and he blows that trumpet, right? Showing that, yeah, humans are not immortal, only God is immortal. We meet, die, we go back to dust. But when Jesus comes back and that trumpet sounds, he will raise us to have immortality. He will raise us to be able to have eternal life. goes on to say, When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God's mission through the fall is to redeem his creation. Not just humanity, but the whole earth. That's why we don't go to heaven and just live there forever. The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation that God is going to create a new earth, right? And we're going to come back to this newly created earth to live here forever. God's mission to the fall is to let the consequences of human rebellion play out so that we can clearly see what sin does and choose voluntarily to obey God instead of listening to the serpent's lies. God's mission to the fall is to take on our sin and pay the price himself for our rebellion so that we can have eternal life. God's mission through the fall is to enable us to be with him without feeling ashamed or afraid. Because love can never be forced, only freely given. And so every day we have the choice, right? God comes walking in the cool of the night 
calling out to us, where are you? And it's up to us how we respond to him. I don't know about you, but I've tasted the consequences of believing the serpent's lies, right? And the result is shame and blame, hiding from God in bitter tears. But I've also tasted the mercy of God, forgiveness, undeserved grace, new opportunities. When the temptation comes, we cannot overcome by our own strength, but we can cry out for help. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with all our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Through Adam and Eve, because of Adam and Eve and, and what we have inherited from them, we are going to fall. But because of Jesus and what we inherit from Jesus, we can always get back up. And so I pray that as you go through this week and temptations come and mistakes are made, bad choices are made, that we remember that God's grace is more than the bad choices that humanity makes. And that in those moments of temptation, we can cry out for him to help us. And that Jesus, the Redeemer, would make us victorious over the serpent. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you gave us Genesis chapter 3 to show us the origin of sin in our earth, but also that you provide mercy. That even though we live with the consequences of humanity's choices, and we live in a broken world that is suffering, that we have this incredible hope that the gift of grace is so much more than the curse of sin. And Father, I pray for those who are going through a lot right now and, and who may be wondering why they have to go through this, why deliverance doesn't come. I pray that you would comfort them and reassure them and remind them that the glory is coming, that healing is coming. And that, Father God, eternal life with you is coming. Help us to do our part to prepare for that day when you will make all things new and when you will restore us to the image of God. We pray in your son's name. Amen.